on this uh this case this this lesson y'all can y'all can see my worlds are colliding in my head um so hopefully it is it goes as well on here as uh it uh does or did on my uh, computer um the reason I, I say that is because this lesson to me is uh, a very complex lesson uh and I got to thinking about what lesson we want or what uh question we want to deal with next and And what kept coming to mind is the Godhead, the Trinity, and the question that a lot of people have about the Godhead and the Trinity and how that incorporates with regard to the Scripture. Um, There are a lot of different illustrations you can use to talk about the Godhead or the Trinity. Uh, And I've heard people use examples like an egg. You know, an egg is made up of the, the shell, the white, and the yolk, and so there's three different parts of the egg, yet they're all the egg. They may have different functions. They may have different uses, uh you know, roles, so to speak, with regard to being an egg, but they're all an egg, uh, even though they're different parts of an egg. Uh, I've heard people talk about the concept of God and the Godhead uh, being described like the, the properties of H2O and the different states that water can actually be in. You know, water can be, and we know from our science classes, and I in no way was a science guy, but uh, from science classes, we learn, of course, that water can be in a liquid state, a gaseous state, or What's the other one? Solid, that's right, solid. So you've got three different states uh, that, that water can be in. And so a lot of people say, hey, that's water, and water is water regardless of what state it might be in and what the, the, the characteristics might be for that specific state. It's all water, and so therefore you can kind of parallel that with the Godhead and the fact that you have three persons, and regardless of what their functions or roles might be, even though they may have distinguishing personalities, they're all three still God. I'm not sure it really does it for me. Any of those that I've read, and, and I got online to try and search and see if I see any of these wiser people to give me some kind of an idea of what they use to illustrate. And nobody can really give a good illustration about the Godhead uh, and how to convey that to anybody and try and explain it. And I think I've about decided why. And the reason is, is because I think us as humans, as we've talked about before in some other lessons, we have such a finite mind. And we are a temporal mind. We have a physical mind. We, our mind thinks in the things that we can see, touch, smell, hear, uh, taste. You know, that's the way our mind functions. And the way we sense things and the way we experience things. And we can't do that with God. And I think that's about what I've decided. Now, that doesn't anyway nullify studying the Godhead, I don't think, in any way. I, I preface the class because I, when I get done with this class, I'm not sure I'll have every answer explained or even at that point be able to tell you exactly how the Godhead functions. Uh, we're not getting into the different personalities and what each one does necessarily. We'll talk about it briefly as we go through just to distinguish the different personalities. But obviously, a whole lesson on Christ and what he gave up when he came on this earth it could, could take a whole quarter of study to talk about Christ and his deity, uh, the functioning of the Holy Spirit. I think y'all remember a couple of years back, I did a whole quarter on the study of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you know, so you can spend a lot of time on the different personalities of the Godhead. That doesn't answer the question about what is the Godhead, or in this case, the question we have today is how is God part of a Godhead? As we've explored and studied God and the different questions about God this quarter, I think our eyes have, at least mine have been, open and challenged to be able to, uh, to say that I, I've gained something from this study. And I think this study today is one of those studies that I wish I could spend even more time on because the Godhead and the way that it relates to each other 
and the way that uh, the, the communication and the ability and the functioning and the glorification made by one personality to another personality, I think is incredible when you start diving into scriptures. And that's kind of what I found myself doing as I was looking at the, the Bible, looking at these different verses that mention God, the father, God, the spirit and, and God, the son, even some of the same verses. It kind of made my mind wonder and want to, to, to study more. And unfortunately, you know, we don't have a whole quarter of study on the Godhead necessarily. But the question is, how is God part of a Godhead? Now, uh, as I said a moment ago with respect to the, the doctrine of the Godhead, um, it is also called the Trinity. I think I called it Trinity when I, I introduced the, the lesson here. It's also called the Trinity. The, the word Trinity actually comes from a Latin word, the trinus, which literally means threefold. And so that's where you see uh, some people referring to the Godhead as being the Trinity. And in reality, there's no distinguishing difference between the two. And so if you see the two words, if you see in your Bible possibly the word Trinity, or you see the word Godhead, and, and there are versions that use those two words. Uh, that, that's exactly, they're meaning the same thing. And uh, literally, it's getting into the, the Latin origins of the word, meaning the, the threefold, which literally goes into the, the concept of the Godhead being three personalities into one essence being nature of God uh, with respect to that. If you see in your Bibles, what you'll see is the term Godhead is actually found three times in the King James Version. Now, if you look at other versions of the Bible, you're not going to see that necessarily. Uh, other versions translate the Greek word there different ways. And if you look in your, in your um, handouts, which we'll get momentarily, uh, I'll have those for you and pass them out. Um, there, there's an article in there that I, I copied and pasted in by Wayne Jackson. And Wayne gets into some of the different words in the Greek and where it comes from and how it's utilized a little bit there for you. You can do a word study on your own if you'd like to. But look with me real quickly at these different verses, these three different places in the Bible that discuss the fact or the concept of this nature of God. Look in Acts chapter 17 real quickly with me. Acts 17, of course, if you remember, is smack dab in the middle of Paul talking there in Athens with respect to uh, the people and the different gods that he saw around him there. Uh, and and set chapter 17 there down in verse uh, 29 gets into his final kind of comments with respect to uh, his thoughts about um, God. And, and of course, he talked about that God wants him to grope after him and to seek after him so that, that we're not very far from him, that we can find him in verse 27. Keep going down there in verse 29. It says, being then the children of God. Thank you, lovely assistant. Um, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring that men everywhere uh, should repent. And you look there in verse 29 and you see a word, and I use the word divine nature in the New American Standard Version. If you have a King James Version, your version may actually say Godhead there. And in fact, the Godhead being mentioned there, uh, and you see the way it's translated in the New American Standard Version, indicates kind of the distinguishing difference and really the, the, the definition of what Godhead is. And the New American Standard uh, translates it as being the divine nature. Look over Romans chapter 1 verse 20. Romans 1, verse 20. Of course, a lot of us use this verse. Uh, those of us doing any kind of apologetics lesson, dealing with the fact that we can look around us and see God around us. Verse 20 is one of those verses we usually point to to say, hey, 
you can look around you. You can see the design in nature. You can see the creation around us and be able to understand what actually, uh, that there is a God amongst us. And so you see in verse 20, this is what Paul says to the Romans. He says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made up. So they are without excuse. Again, uh, the New American Standard translates it divine nature. I believe the King James Version translates it Godhead, if you've got the King James Version. So you'll see there, it's not, it's the, the combination it is an attribute of the God that we know, or that God that we can see, the fact that His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature, His Godhead can be seen when you look around us. Look, real quickly, the third one, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, real quick. You see uh, the use there again by Paul as he's talking to the brethren at Colossae in chapter one, or chapter two, verse nine. Chapter two, verse nine says this: "For in Him, and I love in Him. By the way, if you read Colossians, you'll see a lot of in Hims. That's in Christ. In Him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form." Now, the New American Standard Version translates that same word there. It's the same word used before as deity instead of divine nature in this context here. It's the same word meaning Godhead, deity, Godhead. And so you see a concept in the scriptures there uh, where the, the idea and concept of Godhead is mentioned. It is translated as such in some of the older versions. It's translated, I think, more accurately when you look at divine nature because to me that explains things a whole lot better than putting Godhead in there. Divine nature seems to be a little bit more explicable uh, with regard to uh, what is being meant there in the passage of Scripture there. There's other some passages, uh, there's a lot, and we're going to get into some of the other passages where all three uh, beings, or all three persons of the Godhead, I hate saying beings because it's like I'm trying to differentiate between the two. Brother Verl, you're going to, I hope you catch me on this lesson if I say uh, semantically an issue because... And you know as well as I do, and any other, I see Brother Randy in here actually from university. Good to see you this morning, brother. Um, trying to squeeze in the concept of the Godhead in a 45-minute class is going to be pretty, pretty difficult. And I'm trying to work on my semantics and make sure my terminology doesn't get things misconstrued or misconveyed to you. But the concept is these three personalities of the Godhead are mentioned as being distinct personalities. We'll get to that in just a second as we look at this lesson. But they're mentioned in different places uh, separately as being uh, different personalities. And you see 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Flip over there with me if you would. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 14. This, of course, is the closing verse of 2 Corinthians as Paul there ends up his uh, letter there to the Corinthian brethren, the follow-up letter that he gave to them trying to correct them on some of the issues. It says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And you see verses like this time and time again in the New Testament where there is a distinguishment made between the three different personalities of God. Now, I don't like to try, and, and I, I hate, when I kept rehearsing in my head, and y'all who teach classes, you know you rehearse in your head, you start talking about, you know, how you say things or how you're going to phrase things, and, and in this class, you know, I kind of talked in my head to myself, um, which kind of gets me, to, it's kind of ironic where I'm getting to with this point, but the idea of talk, talking about God having multiple personalities, and, and in a sense, it's, it's kind of like we're attributing a multiple personality disorder to our supreme God. And that's what, what I heard thinking about. It, there's three personalities in one being, and that's kind of what the, 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 the analysis came to in my head. And it's a very strange concept to think about 
but in, in fact, that's what the scriptures point to. Is the fact that there is one God, and we're getting to that point next. But the, 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 the fact of the matter is that in Scripture, they are talked about, all three different personalities of God are being talked about uh, in separate places. They're, they're talked about together as being, you know, as in this passage here, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's number one, that's the Son, the love of God, the Father, and then you look at the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. All three personalities mentioned there in that one verse in Second Corinthians as being distinct differences. You know, if not, it would just would have said the grace and love and fellowship of God be with you all. That's what he would have said if it was just one. And that's it. The Unitarian concept, which I don't want to get in and explore those roads with respect to other denominations or other religious thinking with regard to, to God. But a lot of there's some religious groups out there who actually deny the fact that there's a three in one God. And they said there's only one. And in fact, the, the three concept is ah, it's just it's something distorted. It's something that's just kind of made up. It's something that's, that doesn't really make sense when you look at the scriptures. The problem is it does make sense. Maybe not to our finite minds. But the fact is that each personality has a distinct personality. They have distinct traits. They have distinct functions and roles. But yet the Bible says there's only one God. So our finite mind has to somehow try and reconcile these things to try and make ourselves comprehend which I will honestly tell you, I'm not sure I fully comprehend it. I don't. Much like I don't really think I fully comprehend the love of God sometimes. You know, the fact that God loves us so much that he created us, knowing full and well that we were going to sin against him. You know, you've ever thought about that? I I don't understand how if you knew that was going to happen, which God did. God is all-knowing. He's omniscient. He's all-powerful. He could have done whatever he wanted to do. He could have made robots if he wanted to make robots. Follow them around like minions. That's not what God wanted. God wants to make us with a free will. Why? Because he loves us. I don't understand the love of God sometimes. How he could love someone like me. How he could love someone like Jeffrey Dahmer, serial murderer. How he could love Adam and Eve who had everything going for them and threw it all away. We see in Genesis chapter 3. I don't understand necessarily the love of God. It's something that's kind of beyond my comprehension sometimes. I understand I love my wife. And I understand I love my children. I can understand that myself because it's coming from me. But I I don't always understand the love of God. In the same sense, sometimes I don't understand the Godhead. And I don't want to convey to anybody this morning that I've got it all figured out because I don't necessarily. But I think what I hope to do as we go through the remainder of this class is look at some of the scriptures as they point out some of these things to us to let us see what God wanted to reveal to us about his place, his function, his role, his duty as being part of the Godhead that we worship and we serve. Look with me real quickly. What we see uh, with respect to um, the Godhead as well is the fact that there is one God. There is one God. And the one God is talked about throughout the different places in the Scripture. And we will see these things in the Scripture. Uh, There are different verses that talk about... um, And then my PowerPoint's not working, like I said. Um, Different verses. And look with me if you want to on your handouts, and you're going to see that there is uh, several verses that are talked about uh, in the, the, the discussion there. And, and I, I think I've got them numbered there with regard to the one God there with you. But look with me real, real quickly at a couple of those. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 35 and 39. Deuteronomy 4, 35 and through 39. I don't want to necessarily read all those verses. Just read 35 and 39. It says, verse 35, To you it was shown... That you might know the Lord, 
he is God. There is no other besides him. Verse 39, know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four. Let's travel there through the scripture. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. The Lord is one. First Kings chapter eight, verse 60. First Kings eight and verse 60. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no one else. First Chronicles chapter 17, verse 20. First Chronicles 17, verse 20. You see there, O Lord, there is none like you, nor is there any God beside you. According to all that we have heard with our ears. Isaiah 43, verse 11. Say it, chapter 43, verse 11. Prophet there records, it says, I, and this is the Lord speaking, I, even I, and the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. And there's several other verses you can look to. Let's flip over to James chapter 2, verse 19. In the New Testament there, as you see, uh, as we finish up these verses real quickly here, James chapter 2. Looking there in verse 19. Now, of course, a lot of times we look at this, and this is a great passage to deal with the fact that belief's not enough. It's not enough just to believe to be saved, right? Why is that? A lot of us like to say, well, because the demons, the devils also believe, right? They're not saved. That makes no logical conclusion. And we, that's what we usually turn here to. And in James chapter 2, verse 19, the latter part of that verse says, you know, the demons also believe and shudder. But listen to the first part of the verse. That's very applicable to our study this morning. Verse 19, it says, you believe that God is one. And you do well. See, what we see in the Bible is the fact God is one. There is one God. And the Bible is uncontroverted with regard to the fact there is one God. And so we've got to be very clear and understanding. Uh, I don't know if y'all noticed today, we've got the prime timers actually uh, joining us this morning. I'm, I'm glad to see you guys in class this morning. I know Brother Dwight's out of town. And one of the things he's talking about this quarter is alleged discrepancies in the Bible. And so a lot of people is going to point to this as being an alleged discrepancy. It's kind of funny. Y'all join us. I'm going to talk about an alleged discrepancy in the Bible uh, in here. And that's what we've got is we've got scripture after scripture after scripture. The Lord God is one. There is none other like me. Singular, singular, singular. And then on the flip side, we see scripture after scripture after scripture talking about the fact that there are three personalities of God. Now, do you reconcile the two? Yeah, you can reconcile the two. And you can look at the the two different reconciliations, looking at the divine three beings that there are, the three personalities that there are that consist and help make up the Godhead. This is what I have tried to symbolize it as being. There's different uh, ways to symbolize it. I I finally decided to kind of go away from what is traditionally looked at and and seen. There are some, uh, as a matter of fact, there's a very... uh, popular or commonly used one. It's almost more like in a triangular type shape with regard to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then they have God in the middle and they have them both connected and says, you know, God is those three. And then they have lines between the two and say, God is not those, (laughs) you know, and so you kind of have the triangular kind of concept of the Trinity, uh, the Godhead. I don't really like that because it almost places God kind of outside the three different personalities. Uh, as you look at the, the diagram, and it's, it's a pie chart, it's really what it boils down to. 
for those of us of mathematical persuasion. You see, God is that, that, that overwhelming, that, the purple circular uh, background. It's God. And then comprising God are three different personalities. You have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so what we see in scriptures is that there is a distinctiveness between the, the, the different uh, personalities of God. And the fact is, is as you look at the personalities of God, they are distinct uh, because of the different verses dealing with what they do and what they have and, and, and what, what their role and responsibilities may be. And so, in fact, even as we talked to briefly before, uh, they are not only different in function sometimes... But they're also all three talked about as being present in a location. And I think those are some very important understandings to understand that these are distinct personalities. That's why there are personal distinctions. I tried to, I don't like saying personality so much because, like I said, I had a problem with calling God as having multiple personality disorder. But, and it's not a disorder when it comes to God, I guess. It's just multiple personality. It's not a disorder. Uh, but that's what you have with God is three distinct personalities. You see that in Scripture. Look with me real quick. Let's go through some of these. Matthew chapter 3. Matthew 3 is a great passage to look at here. And what you see in Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, is, of course, the, the baptism of Jesus. And after Christ comes back out of the water, it says in verse 16, After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And of course, the voice from heaven being God the Father. You see in Matthew chapter 3, all three personalities existing, coexisting, co-interacting, being co-involved with respect to the actions of God here. And that's what you see, that there is distinctiveness with regard to the personalities. Christ was baptized. The Spirit descended in the form of a dove. God called out. God the Father called out from heaven saying, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. You see all three personalities of God being involved. There's a distinctiveness between them. Matthew 28, verse 19. We know that verse pretty common uh, with regard to the Great Commission, of course. The latter part of that is not just going and making disciples, baptizing them, but baptizing them in in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It doesn't just say in the, in the name of God. It actually describes the three different personalities. Now, here's a quick side note. As you do some study on this, you'll see there's some actually some, some religious groups, organizations that, that say actually it is wrong to baptize in name and, and say aloud all three of these. That in fact, you're really only baptizing in the name of Jesus. Of course, that directly contradicts Matthew chapter 28. So I think you point to that and say you're wrong. You know, don't bind that on me. I think it's also wrong for us to understand or it's, it's wrong for us to say, well, you've got to say this even sometimes. Um, we're baptizing in the authority of God. God gives us the authority. We're baptizing, of course, because of the multiple functions of the three personalities of God. Because God sent his son to die on the cross for us. He conveyed that to us through his spirit and confirmed it through his spirit. Obviously, they're all interworking in the mechanics and the operations that bring about salvation. We're baptized for the forgiveness of our sins... In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I think we got to see that. What this verse tells us for purposes of our lessons today, of course, is the fact that you see all three personalities distinctive, pointed out, differentiated. 
in the passage here in Matthew chapter 28. You can go through several of these other ones here and look and see. We don't have time, unfortunately, to go through all of them. I do want to look at a couple more if we can. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14 is one, of course, we've already looked at. Uh, go to Mark, uh, John chapter 14, 26. John 14, 26. I like the passages like this that actually are Christ talking because I think it's very interesting to see his interaction and the way that he uh, integrates uh, the three personalities with regard to the things that he says, the things he prays for, the, the, the places that he goes, the things that he does. And, and what you see in John chapter 14, verse 26, is, uh, is his conveying to the uh, disciples. He's comforting them. We know in the early part of chapter 14 is when he says, you know, don't be, to, don't be afraid. Uh, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in me. Believe also in God. Uh, you know, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. He's comforting them. Saying, hey, when I go, I'm going to go to prepare a place for you and I will come back and, and take you to be with me. And he goes on in chapter 14 trying to con- convey to them not just comforting words of wisdom, but also the fact of the unity and the oneness that he has with God the Father, which is very interesting when you look at, at chapter 14. And then you get on down to verse 26 and there's some references now made with respect to the, the Spirit's involvement, the helper, so to speak. And I like that phrase. And when you study the, the when we study the, the the Holy Spirit, we talked about the Holy Spirit being God's helper, and that's exactly what the Spirit's function is. Is He's helping in many different ways. In the New Testament, of course, you see the miraculous being the overwhelming way that the Spirit helps. And you see today the Spirit continues to help, not just with the indwelling of the Spirit, and we can get into debate of what that means. But we know we are assured we have the Spirit, the the blessings of the Spirit when we become a Christian. But we also know that the Spirit continues to work in us and for us through His Word. The Spirit gave us this Word. And so Jesus is comforting the disciples here in chapter 14, verse 26. He says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Again, you see the distinctiveness there between the three different personalities of God. You see that the the Spirit will come. Why? Because the Father will send Him. And why will He send Him? He will send Him in His name. And of course, we know invoking the name of someone in the New Testament talks about authority. And the fact that Jesus' name would be the authority, the way, the, 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 the mechanism that would allow the Spirit to be able to come and, and to be the helper that God would want to send to us. You see some other passages real quickly. I want to look at uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. 1 Peter 1, 2 gets into Peter's, of course, addressing and his, the initial uh, things that he says there in his letter. In verse 2, after he says, you know, he addresses the letter to all the, the aliens there, uh, not just aliens as in supernatural aliens, uh, the aliens being the foreigners uh, scattered throughout the, uh, the different lands. And the aliens would actually be the converted Christians uh, that were going there among the heathens, so to speak. So he classifies them as being aliens. I like that term. I feel like we should all think we're aliens. So that's what we are. Uh, we're aliens in this world. This world is not our home. We're just passing through. You know, think about that mindset. As Peter addresses his epistle to those who are scattered abroad, he says in verse 2, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Again, look, all three mentioned, all three personalities of Christ, of God mentioned there in First Peter chapter 1, verse 2, uh, indicative and indicating there that there are distinct personalities. And then finally, let's look at Jude real quick. I like to use Jude as much as I can. A poor book, I think, gets neglected way too often. Uh, you know, it's just one of those little books. 
Uh, a lot of people just kind of skip over it. You know, they can jump right to Revelation and get into the, the apostasy and get into the, the wonderful apocryphal language in Revelation. They forget about poor little Jude there. And the book of Jude, I think, addresses this. And, and Jude chapter, uh, well, it's chapter 1, Jude verse 20 and 21. Again, uh, look at the way that it's phrased there. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And again, you see all three, all three there in the passage in Jude 20 and 21. You see the fact that there is a distinctiveness between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There are three divine personalities. There are three divine parts, if you want to call it parts, of who the God head is. And we can't argue with that, really. When you look at the scriptures, that scripture after scripture after scripture, and again, this is just a sampling of these scriptures here, but what you see is that there is one God, there's no doubt one God, and because of that one God, you've got an inclusion there of the three different personalities of God joining and being comprised of the whole. So when you hear three in one, it's true. When you hear that there is a holy trinity, it's true. And I don't believe every teaching you may hear from a domination or a religious group about that. But the, the Bible supports the concept that there is a holy trinity, a Godhead, so to speak, comprised of three distinct personalities, being God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, my mind has a hard time wrapping around that. I don't know about yours. Thankfully, I accept it. And what I try to, to say is that as... Paul told the Corinthians, we walk by faith and, and not by sight. And so thankfully, that gives me a little bit of assurance that I don't have to know everything. Thankfully. My wife gets on to me, and she's in here so I can talk about her. Uh, my wife gets on to me because I like to ask a lot of questions. And Cody, I don't know if you're going to be like this or not, but you may be as being a lawyer. Uh, that's what happens. You ask a lot of questions. That's your job. Holly, you're in law school now too. As, as y'all go through, that, you're, you're told to prod, to to try and pry open with questioning to find the truth and to find the answers. I was like that way before I went to law school, to be honest with you. I know y'all can't imagine that. But I get, I get in trouble because I like to ask questions. I, I want to know why. My mom said when I was a three-year-old, I was incorrigible with respect to the, the question, but, but why, mom? Why? And she'd give me an answer. I'd say, but why? And I keep asking, keep asking. And I get that way sometimes in my religious life. And sometimes I want to know a concrete, solid, rock solid answer to some question. And sometimes I just don't always get it. And thankfully, I get reminded of the fact that we have to understand God's revealed those things we need that are necessary, right? That's what he says in the Old Testament. He's given us what's necessary so that we've got those things. And everything else, eh, it may just be fluff. We may not really need to understand the Godhead to obey him, right? I mean, do we have to understand the how in order to understand the why? No, not always. And in this respect, I think that's where I find myself being oftentimes. Uh, with respect to, to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and what, what's interesting to look at these divine three is also to understand what they are not. And not just the fact that they are delineated and differentiated um, in the, the passages of Scripture, but they're also there's indication that they are not one and the same either. Such, 
for an example here. God the Father is not God the Son. Look in Mark chapter 13 with me, verse 32. Mark 13, verse 32. By the way, some of these passages are some of those that kind of made me want to go off on rabbit trails and answer some other questions. As I said, I like answers to questions, so uh, we won't be able to answer every question today. But look in verse 32. This is one of those rabbit trails you may get into and you see a lot of different discussions on this. Of course, this is Christ speaking here about the return or his return one day. And verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Verse 32 says, but of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the son, but the father alone. Now, what's important here? I don't want to get into what did Christ give up his all knowing ability? Does that mean he's not deity? I don't want to chase the rabbit this morning if I can avoid it. Okay. Um, I'll be glad to, to look at that with you. There's some great articles about that, about what did God give up when he came to this earth? Did he just choose, which God can choose, not to know something for a time? So Jesus may have just chosen not to know for a certain period of time. Does he know today? I, again, that's not what I want to get into with regard to Mark chapter 13, verse 32. What I do want to point out is this. This verse clearly indicates that God the Father does not equal God the Son. They are not the same, nor can we try and agree with any religious organization or religious group or religious thinking that tries to say God the Father equals God the Son. That is not true. It is false. Same same respect with that. We also see God the Father is not God the Spirit. There's a distinction there between those two personalities. Look with me, Galatians chapter 4 real quickly. Galatians chapter 4 verse 6 says, because you are sons, and of course, this is uh, Paul talking to the Galatian brethren here, uh, 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 talking about the, the accommodation with respect to what they have with regard to Christ. And, and you see in, in uh, verse 6, it says, because you're sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And again, we can trace some rabbit holes with this verse. It, it brought a lot of questions to mind for me. And it probably does for you as well. I encourage you, use some personal Bible study. Look at some of these issues and questions here. Dive into what does this really mean to us? What does it mean for the Spirit to be inside of us crying out, Abba, Father? You know, it it brings in some good points and some good lessons for us. But what this verse tells us for purposes of our study today, today, God the Father is not God the Spirit. Because it says there, God the Father sent, sent. God the Spirit. Two distinct personalities, two different purposes, and in fact, one is fulfilling different roles and responsibilities than another might. You also see scriptures also indicating that God the Son is not God the Spirit. And again, we, also, we already talked about John 14, 16. I don't want to read it again there, but he's talking about the, the helper coming. And um, it's actually supposed to be 26, not 16, I think. But um, John 14, I'll make sure 16 is not something important too, but... Well, it is. It is, actually. It's the beginning of the section talking about the Spirit coming. So flip over there if you want to, back to John 14. It says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. And that is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. And again, we could go on all kinds of tangents talking about the impact of this verse upon disciples of Christ and, and followers of God and see the, the impact of, of you can't receive the Spirit if you don't know Him, if you don't study Him, those kind of things. It impacts discussions with denominational brethren all the time if you get down to the nitty-gritty with regard to it. This verse is very important 
But you also see the importance of this verse of the study today. Again, it mentions all three personalities, right? I, which is Christ, talking here, talking about God the Father and sending the Spirit. And in fact, he, what he says here is that, that Jesus, God the Son, is going to ask the Father and he's going to send, he's going to give, he's going to uh, bring about uh, the Spirit being with the disciples. Obviously, he's not talking about him coming back to the disciples, There's a delineation there between God the Son and God the Spirit. They are not the same. And so not only do you have the argument that there are references throughout the Bible talking about God the Father and God the the, the Son and and God the Holy Spirit and being involved and being present at different locations and different uh, times and places and being involved in salvation, those three personalities being involved, you also have the same verses that you can go and turn to to show and to prove that there's no way they can be the same. There's no way. Because they are distinct with regard to what they are to be doing. Uh, now you look, and I've listed for you some things there with regard to uh, uh, some Old Testament evidence. I'm not going to get into the Old Testament evidence and New Testament evidence because I think it's uh, important for you to, 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 you can, we don't have time, honestly. But you, can, you got the handout there, you can look into it. What I do want to point out real quickly with regard to the Old Testament evidence, from the very beginning, the inception of the Bible. In fact, the second word of the Bible is the word God. Well, now I think about it. It's not really the second word. I, I, I don't know the Hebrew. I can't remember the, the correlation. The first verse. Sorry. The first verse of the Bible. We've memorized it from childhood. In the beginning, y'all finish it. God created the... All right, I'm trying to wake you up a little bit here. That's right, Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when you study the Hebrew, and we talked about this in one of our very first lessons about the names of God. The name used of God there is Elohim. Elohim, which is a Hebrew word. But a very important and interesting part about the, 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 the word Elohim is actually it's a plurality form. And so from the very first verse of the Bible, you have a plurality indicating God. And then a singular, by the way, created is a singular verb. And again, I'm not an English person. Uh, You English teachers in here, please forgive me. But you've got the, the, you really have a disjointed sentence if you really were to have it in the American language, English language. Because you have a plural with a singular verb. A plural noun, singular verb, and that shouldn't be the way it is. But that's the way it is in this language. Why? Well, because of this fact. God wanted to make sure and convey to the Israelites, the Jewish nation, and ultimately to us as modern-day Christians. He wanted to convey to them in the the first century. And you see that from Paul's writing. Paul clearly understood the fact there was a a triune, that there was a a, a trinity, that there was a Godhead, a fact of three in one. He understood that principle probably because of this. Because when you go back and look at that that exact, that original language, it, it indicates to you how important it is to understand that there was a, a plurality indicating there of God. Now, God's still singular. The word there is still used as a singular word, even though it actually is a plural word. Look at the, the, uh, the New Testament evidence. There are several different things there that you can look at. What I wanted to point to with regard to the New Testament evidence is that there are different functions. There are different ways that uh, you see in the New Testament of the different personalities of God being involved, being a part and uh, being part of the singular God with respect to uh, who God is and what he does. Real quickly, lessons to consider, and I just want to look at them. You've got them on your sheet on the back there if you want to look at it. But the, the, the terms Godhead and Trinity are proper names for biblical concepts. 
Uh, it is a biblical concept that there is a Godhead. Now, just because it's a biblical concept, maybe I warn you that just because you do a search on the internet or you talk to religious friends, the things that they try and teach and promulgate regarding the Godhead are not always true. They can't, they can't back it up. You can back up the idea there's three in one by scriptures. You can't back up the fact that, well, God has a earthly form body. That's what Mormons believe. They actually has a physical body. There's no way you can support that with scripture. It's not there. So you can't go that part and that far with regard to how they apply the, the terms. But there's nothing wrong with using Godhead and Trinity. Why? Because it is a biblical concept. And with faith, as I said before, we can be assured that there is one God who exhibits three personalities, regardless of how difficult it might be for us to understand. Each of these three personalities of the Godhead is, is eternal and equal in essence, though they may assume individual roles in their respective work. And finally, and I want to point this out again, as I've, I just kind of enforced it, but I want to encourage you as you study and you think about the concept of the Godhead and the Trinity, what you've got to understand is misunderstanding of this concept can lead to, can lead to serious problems in spiritual lives. What we can be assured of is that God is there. He's with us. He, he is going to be there with us. He has provided not only his son, but also the spirit. And he, God the Father is there willingly uh, loving us like a father would. And those concepts are, are hard to miss. And they're so important in our scriptural, our spiritual lives. Next week, I want to end with a lesson that we probably should have begun with. Where did God come from? He's the Alpha and the Omega. So I'm going to talk about it on the Omega end, talking about the Alpha end. All right, appreciate you guys. See you next week.